Okay, I think we should make a start. Um, my name is Mike Savage. I'm the head of the Department of Sociology here at the LSE, and it's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you all to tonight's uh, uh, session on race and class. I should explain that um, I'm introducing this session because a few months ago the Running Mead Trust moved into the LSE, and uh, the association with the Department of Sociology was kind of working together. Running Mead Trust are remaining, of course, an independent body, but they do really important work, but we're really excited from the perspective of the department to be collaborating over various activities, of which this is one of the first. So hopefully this will be the first of many interesting and exciting intellectual um, discussions we have together. So without further ado, I'd like to pass on to Suki Ali, who will introduce today's uh, event. Thank you. Um, thanks very much. So um, in my role as chair, just to uh, let you know that the event is being podcast and um, that we've organised this very much as a panel discussion in which we're hoping to get interaction from members of the audience and questions and comments raised for the panel. Um, the event can be tweeted. This is all a bit beyond me. I shouldn't admit that. But it's uh, hashtag LSE, Runnymede LSE, LSE Runnymede. Quick. It's on there. LSE Runnymede. Fantastic. Technology. Um, and um, I'd like to introduce this evening's panel to you, um, briefly before we start. Then the panel will be speaking for between seven and uh, ten minutes each, and we'll open up for the questions and comments. So we have um, Liz Fichetti, who Liz is the director of the Institute of Race Relations and the head of its European research program. She's worked at IRR for 30 years and writes and speaks extensively on aspects of contemporary racism, racism and fascism, refugee rights, EU counter-radicalisation and anti-terrorist policies, and Islamophobia across Europe. She's the author of A Suitable Enemy, Racism, Migration and Islamophobia in Europe, published by Pluto. Liz was part of the CARF Collective and an expert witness at the Basso Permanent People's Tribunal on Asylum and the World Tribunal on Iraq. She's currently an associate of the International State Crime Initiative at King's College London. <coughs> Ellie Mae O'Hagan is a regular columnist for The Guardian, Comment is Free. She works with the Centre of, uh, for Labour and Social Studies, or CLASS, a think tank focusing on working rights and inequality. She's also worked with several Latin American organizations. Ellie writes mostly on trade unions, activism, feminism in Latin America. James Nasru is Professor of Sociology and Director of the ESRC Center on Dynamics of Ethnicity at the University of Manchester. He initially trained at St. George's Hospital Medical School and later studied for his PhD in Sociology at UCL. James's research on ethnic inequalities began with a focus on health, describing differences across and within broad ethnic groupings, and assessing the contribution that social disadvantage might make to these differences. Central to this has been developing an understanding of the links between ethnicity, racism, class, and inequality. This work has covered a variety of elements of social disadvantage, including socioeconomic position, racial discrimination and harassment, and ecological effects. Dr. Debbie Weeks-Bernard is Head of Research at Runnymede, and her work has included research on the impact of educational choice agendas um, on BME parents and children. She's organised large conferences on education and community cohesion, and speaking, is speaking and writing about issues to do with choice, cohesion, achievement, and educational inequality. So, um, without further ado, I'd like to pass over to our first speaker, Liz Fichetti. Thank you. Try not to trip over on the way to the back. Um, 
The first thing to say from that introduction by Suki, which seemed to go on for about half an hour about me, I actually felt really ancient because if I've done those things, I must have been around for quite a long time. And the first thing that I want to say, and I've recognised some faces in the audience who I've known for, for 30 years or so, that it's very important that we're having this debate on race, class and inequality. But the terms of which we're having it are remarkably different from the terms when we were having these debates over 30 years ago. The communities in this country have changed radically and also in terms of the power or the lack of power that they have in society. So that's the first point that I want to make. You know, I'm so pleased to be talking about inequality because for the last five years we've had a government that has had absolutely no agenda, no policies on equalities. We're becoming much more like other European countries, that we're going towards a much more assimilationist, colour-brown approach to equality, what Eric Pickles, the former government minister, called a mainstreaming approach. And within that approach, lots of lots of communities have become invisible. I'm thinking particularly of the refugee communities and also the Roma, Gypsy and Traveller communities. The EU had a, 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 a strategy around Europe where every government had to have a strategy for integration around the Roma, and our government had absolutely nothing to say on Roma inequalities. So in probably about the five minutes I've now got left to me, I want to touch on two themes. The first is how inequality is being defined, or shall I say sort of defined out of the picture, and what I want to talk about is a very important subject that I think has been left out, but I hope we will include, and that is the whole question of the growing structured violence in society. And then I want to conclude with some comments about what we're doing at the Institute of Race Relations to look at issues of race, class and inequality. So I think the first thing we need to understand is that... <clears throat> There's actually, in the climate that we're living in at the moment, which is a very neoliberal climate, it's very difficult to talk about structures in society. It's difficult to talk about uh, a subject like poverty because we're not all actually talking from the same hymn sheet. So if you look at the ideas that are coming out of the government, you would think that poverty is actually all the fault of, all the, fault of the poor that there aren't structures in society creating poverty and exclusion. And this also sort of brings me back in time to the period of when we had the first... Uh, we had Thatcherism in this country, where actually you had a huge assault by new right ideologues um, on the poor. And the idea of that poverty was created by cultural deficit within poor communities. And within that, the black, the Asian communities suffered from a particular idea about the pathology of, of the black family. And I see all those ideas very much coming back in the current climate. So, you know, and within this, because poverty is blamed on the culture of the poor... We're actually seeing, as I said before, some communities um, demonised in the media and others becoming invisible. Which leads me to that second point, is what is being left out in the discussion. 
I mean, I'm sure you're all aware that we're going to have 12 billion worth of, of cuts in welfare under the austerity. And this is, of course, uh, an assault on, on a, a class of people. But I think within that, race definitely plays a part. And within our experience at the Institute of Race Relations going back 30 years, it always tends to be that the sort of social control aspect of policies that affect the class affect communities, minority communities, even more because of these sort of cultures of pathologising the black family, etc. So what we're seeing at the moment is, particularly with local authority budgets being diminished, is that the sort of social control aspect of social welfare is coming to the fore. And then within that, you're seeing a loss of expertise within local authorities, a loss of expertise, all the people who are the, you know, uh, giving special assistance to, say, Roma and Traveller children. You're seeing institutional memory loss within those organisations. And you're actually seeing poorer services all round. And I think it's very interesting that... The uh, head of the police federation, which isn't normally an organisation that you know I would be quoting, but the head of the police federation has actually been talking about the fact that with the cuts in the policing budget, the social control aspect of policing, the more harsher aspect of policing, the more violent aspect of the policing will come to the fore. And we recently brought out a report at the institute which detailed 509 deaths of people from black and minority ethnic communities um, in police, in prisons and in immigration removal centres since 1991. And one of the conclusions of that is that particular stereotypes of particular communities result in police and other institutions using more undue force against those communities. The second thing that I want to draw attention to is but we are actually living in a period where, of great change in society. We're moving, sometimes I wonder what sort of state we're moving into. It certainly doesn't feel like a democratic state anymore to me. But with the dismantling of the welfare state has gone hand in hand with the increase in prisons increase in prisons and we're very much moving towards a US model of massive and long-term incarceration. Uh, in the report that we just did which looked at deaths in prison, which actually was the highest category of, of areas where there were de deaths, 26.1% of the prison population is from black and minority ethnic communities. And our prisons, we have the largest incarceration rates in Europe, and we're very much moving to an American model of organised abandonment of poor communities coupled with mass incarceration. So we've been working with groups on the ground like Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association, which actually represents the families who've got people in prison under the Joint Enterprise laws, which basically, if you're in a group that goes out at night, some people might call it a gang, one person uh, gets involved in a fight and kills somebody, there's ten of you, all ten of you will go to prison for joint enterprise. And 80% of prisoners under joint enterprise are again from minority communities. To finish on the way forward, 
What we feel at the Institute, and we have a news service, we are our news service, which I hope you'll all subscribe to, where we try to look at these issues, is we're seeing that the state is learning across itself in terms of social control. So we're seeing aspects of the asylum system now being rolled out in terms of the treatment of people on welfare. We're living in a political culture which encourages suspicion and contempt for whole groups of people who are deemed surplus to the requirements of a neoliberal project. And when I look at what's happening in the Mediterranean, when I look at the fact that our government does not want to put money into search and rescue operations, but actually wants to bomb boats in the Mediterranean, I do ask myself whether we are, in some ways, in a trajectory that is the worst part of the authoritarian elements of the European tradition. There's a term that came out of Nazi Germany that Hitler used, the lowest of the low, and that's what I think we're seeing in the treatment of boat people. What we're trying to do at the Institute is to build on the knowledge from the new class politics on the ground around austerity. So we're trying to bring you news on our news services of the new campaigns, things against PFI, the... uh, campaigns around evictions. If you look at an area like Brixton, it has suffered disproportionately from BFI debt evictions. So we're trying to bring you news of these stories and we're trying to look at issues of class and poverty but aligning them or inflecting them with our concerns about racism. Thank you. Um, thank you, Liz. And we're just going to run, run the papers on at this point. So it's um, Ellie May O'Hagan to speak next. Um, I hope you don't mind if I stay here. I really don't like speaking at podiums. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm going to focus mainly on the class element of this rather than talking too much about the race element. Um, I feel that um, as a white person who's never actually directly experienced racism, I think the contribution that I could give on the race element won't be as authoritative or as, as deep as probably a lot of people in this audience and on this panel could give. So I'm going to put that to one side and talk more about class. Um, although, obviously, what I think we can all agree on is that class and race can't be separated because obviously there are people of colour in the working class Um, And I think that's something that is often forgotten when we talk about class. And that really makes me cross, actually. Um, We talk a lot about the white working class. And with the rise of UKIP, you know, with them becoming the third most popular party, there's this sort of idea that the the white working class are sort of very disenfranchised and they've kind of been lost somehow. And we now have to sort of scrabble to recoup them. And, you know, when you think of the white working class, I don't know what you think of, but I sort of think of some bloke who's sort of down a mine, you know, with soot on his face. And he's sort of... You know, comes up out of the mind to the Hovis advert theme tune. Um, and I think, you know, what that is is a symptom of the, sort of the fact that the working class has been so disenfranchised and disempowered for 30 years in this country that all of our images of working class people are really old because we're like quite fragmented and, uh, you know, the trade unions are very powerless compared to what they used to be. Um, So it means that we haven't been able to sort of culturally update our images in the minds of people. So we do tend to think of a white man when we think of working class. Um, The truth is, if you're in the working class um, these days, you're much more likely to be a woman. Um, You've got more chance of being BME than you would be if you were in any other class. 
um, you're more, you've got more chance of being um, disabled than you would be if you were in any other class. And you're more likely to work in the sort of retail and service sector. So much more likely to be a kind of call centre worker or a waiter or a waitress uh, rather than a sort of coal miner or a kind of, um, I don't know, like a car mechanic or something like that because of the way that our economy has changed. So I think, you know, we really need to update our images of um, working class people. I think that's doing a disservice to people like women, like BME people who exist in the working class and are kind of marginalised in favour of this kind of white working class and kind of unsaid but is male sort of image that we have. Um, And also I think one thing that's uh, neglected as well is that if you're in the working class in this country and you do a working class job, you're much more likely to interact with BME people and crucially with migrants than you would be if you were a sort of a professional. And I think, you know, that's really important to note that because, you know, when you think about uh, the messages of, of parties like UKIP and the way that those have been sort of emulated by other political parties, it really neglects the fact that actually who do migrants work with every day um, you know, who do they interact with every day? Well, it's, wor- it's working-class people in this country, and I feel like that's something um, that isn't really acknowledged or discussed about in our discourse around uh, class and around race. Um, one thing, I come from a working-class community, and I will say right now I live in Stoke Newington and I write for The Guardian, so I'm definitely not working-class anymore. Like, that ship has definitely sailed. But I used to. I was born working-class. I was raised working-class, and I'm still very close to my Welsh community at home, which is a working-class community. Um, and I actually find it really offensive to be constantly, sort of, to have the, this constant implication from sort of media, from commentators and from uh, politicians that there's something inherently racist about my community, that my class, where I come from and the people that I grew up with are sort of racist. And, um, and I find that usually what is being implied when politicians suggest that working class people are racist is that they're too stupid to really sort of understand what racism is, understand that they're being racist and to sort of engage in debates about racism. And that's something that I find, like, I just find that very offensive and just um, not true. And I think, again, we come back to this idea of this white working class guy. It's this idea that the working class is so homogenised as a demographic that those debates aren't taking place within the working class, that working class people aren't having those arguments themselves. Um, And, of course, they are. I mean, this is a very trite example, but um, uh, uh, one of the boys I grew up with at home... (coughs) recently posted something on Facebook about um, ISIS. Um, ISIS had committed some atrocity. And, um, and he put something on Facebook about how horrified he was by this particular atrocity. <coughs> but unfortunately, then, it sort of spiralled into just a generic racist rant. And, um, and actually, lots of other people that I grew up with sort of intervened and said to, said to him, called him out and said, you know, that's not you know, that's not okay, it's not acceptable, and sort of talked a lot about the British foreign policy and its relationship with the sort of um, the rise of ISIS, you know. And, and I, you know, and so that's kind of happening. Like, we don't need a politician, an Oxbridge sort of uh, graduate kind of technocrat in a suit. Like, we don't need that guy to come in and tell us, arbitrate for us, like, what is and isn't acceptable discourse. Like, I don't need a politician to tell me that. Like, I never have, and no one I grew up with ever has. You know, when I when people I grew up with were being racist, like they knew they were being racist, and other people knew they were being racist and would call them out on it. We don't need, you know, like any mainstream party to sort of d- 
divined that on our behalf, and I just yeah, I find it very insulting, you know, that that um, that that's what really where discourse has sort of gone with with the relationship between um, class and race, you know. And, and I think a really great example of this is uh, you you probably all recall the sort of um, controversy over Emily Thornbury tweeting the picture of the white van and the and the England flag um, in, in in the kind of UKIP thing, those UKIP constituency. Or, um, with a high UKIP percentage, and um, my brother is a, is a joint, he's a carpenter, and he um, he drives a white van. Um, so I texted him a joke that day, being like, "Oh, Ed Miliband's chasing your vote" or something like that. And he was like, "What do you mean?" And I was like, "How do I how do I explain this to him? Like, how do I someone who you know he sort of has a cursory interest in politics, but he doesn't really like follow it. He doesn't work in it like I do. You know, he watches the news every night, but beyond that, he's not really." And I, so I thought, was like, how do I explain this? And I was like, so you know how you drive a white van and everyone thinks that you're racist because of that? And I was like, no, 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 that's not going to work. And I was like, so you know how like people that have white vans are racist? No, no, you can't. And I was just like, oh, this is really offensive. I have to really insult my brother now. So, you know, by sort of like sort of sharing this ridiculous debate with him. I was like, how do I possibly? I mean, it's so stupid and ridiculous. And he was just like, I, he was like, don't tell me. I don't want to know. And I just, you know... And it, well, really, the sort of stupidity, the kind of asinine quality of debate that, that that was, comes from when you have a group of kind of very, you know, want to talk about who's homogenised? Well, it's politicians who are homogenised way more than like the working class are. You know, it's what this is what happens when you have a particular class of like media and politicians who are so estranged from working class people. They're just kind of feeling around in the dark, like trying to sort of second guess their answers, and they were, you know, and it was very, it felt very much like them going, well, you know, this this kind of feels like something that people might be offended by, feels like there's something kind of with race going on here, and it might be offensive. So like, uh, let's just like create a big storm out of it and sack Emily Thornberry, and you know, and what really frustrated me about that as well, and it was so bizarre, was this sort of the belief on behalf of the politicians who condemned Emily Thornberry and the newspapers just whipped up into a storm was that they were intelligent enough to divine the symbolism of the St George's Cross to understand that the St George's Cross has kind of connotations of colonialism of imperialism of jingoism of race you know they could infer that from what Emily Thornberry um, had tweeted but the poor working class man who'd hung it up outside his house was just some stupid idiot who just hung a flag upside his, outside his house and like didn't know what it meant because he's stupid and he drives the right van and I just you know and then actually he was interviewed and he said a load of racist things and it's like well yeah because he understood the symbolism of like the England flag carries a weight of symbolism with it he understood that and he hung it outside his house to make a statement because he's not an idiot like it's you that thinks he's an idiot he's he's a person who gets what he was doing and he did it and so you know and who are you selling out by by having that quality of debate well you're selling out all of the, the people in this country who have, you know, moved here from other countries, who are BME, who now have to sort of, like, live in this discourse where this kind of misunderstood working class guy who is actually a racist isn't racist because we don't want to, like, offend this mythical working white working class dude that actually doesn't, hasn't really existed for 30 years anyway. You know, I really just think we're, like, we're at us. I mean, you can tell that I sort of feel annoyed by all of this because I'm kind of going off on a rant now. But I just feel like it really just, you know, it, I feel very sold out by it as a woman coming from this class who has to deal with people, uh, you know, catcalling me in the street and then getting told, 
oh, he's just a guy in a white van, he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, like, BME people are sold out by it because they have to tolerate racism and they're sort of, they're told, you know, well, you know, these people are just, they're just simple-minded, you kind of have to deal with that. You know, like, gay people are, are sort of, well, B, uh, LGBTQ people, I should say, are sold out by it because, um, you know, if you look at the recent Ireland referendum, there was this sort of assumption that the working-class areas of Ireland would uh, all vote against gay marriage, well, or equal marriage. Well, my, as you can tell, O'Hagan, my family come from Ireland, they're all working class, and they all voted for it because, surprise, surprise, they have gay people in their family and they want them to be able to get married, you know. You know, this idea that, like, this kind of social liberalism only belongs to this sort of elite group of people that we must then pass it down onto these idiots below. And it, and it sells out working-class people themselves who also form all of the demographics I was just talking about because it makes them out to be idiots. So I'm going to stop now because I think I've gone over time. And so I'm just going to finish by saying we need a better class of discourse. And I'm glad to be here, and I hope that this goes some way to achieving it. Thank you very much. And James, yeah. So you'll have gathered from the uh, introduction that I had. Thank you very much. I'm an academic. uh, And that means that uh, I need both a lectern and slides to be able to cope (laughs) with this this event. First off, to say thank you to the Running New Trust and to LSE for, for setting this event up. And to everybody who's come, it's great that this um, uh, lecture theatre is full um, uh, to talk about these uh, questions of race and class. I'm actually going to talk about race um, uh, only and uh, kind of address the question, how can we, or try and address the question, how can we challenge race, ethnic inequalities? Uh, And I want to do just two things in in my um, uh, uh, introduction to the debate. One is to just remind you the harms that are done to people of ethnic minority or racial minority uh, origin. So I'm going to put up a few slides just to show you those harms and then to say a little bit about the policy context and what's happening within the policy context from my um, perspective. So something about the harms. This is to remind us that race is very important in terms of determining uh, someone's driving someone's uh, chances of a good life or a bad life. That we're not in a post-race world, that race inequalities are very marked. So on this slide, this slide shows income uh, and it shows income split into thirds of the population uh, and if income was equally distributed across different ethnic groups then you'd expect each ethnic group that I have along the bottom uh, to have a third of its population in each of the colour segments of the bar. And you can see very quickly that that, that's not the case. As you go down the slide, um, the proportion of people in the lowest third of incomes rises uh, dramatically and the proportion of people in the top third of incomes reduces dramatically. To such an extent that the figures for the Pakistani and Bangladeshi populations are shocking and, dis- and distract from the extent of inequality faced by Caribbean, Indian and Chinese people. So almost half of the Caribbean population are in the bottom third of incomes. Nine out of ten of the Bangladeshi population are in the bottom third of incomes. A marker of the degree of inequality that exists in um, our society. And it's not just in income, of course, it's in other dimensions of economic activity. And importantly, these other dimensions of economic activity have shown a persistence of inequality over time. So here I have data from the census, the 1991 census, the 2001 census, and the 2011 census, a particular age group of men and women compared, and the proportion of people who are unemployed in each of four ethnic categories over time. 
And what you can see in the paler blue bar is the rates for white people. In the purple bar, the purple bar, the rates for Indian people, red, black Caribbean, and uh, the yellowy orange Bangladeshi people. And you can see that the Indian rate almost sits on top of the white rate and has done since 1991 for men and sits above and stays at the same level above for women over time. Higher rates of unemployment for the black Caribbean population and those rates have remained consistently high over time, over a 20-year period when we've seen shifts in education, second generations appearing in the labour market and so on. You see a similarly negative picture for the uh, Bangladeshi population, but those inequalities appear to have fallen. I can tell you that that fall is entirely driven by the movement into, into part-time work, zero-hours contracts, insecure employment. So that fall is driven entirely um, by that. So much so that um, uh, Bangladeshi men now have the same rate of part-time employment as white women, and I would argue one is around choice and the other is around constraint. This slide looks at um, racial prejudice, and you can see um, in the red line the proportion of people who say uh, that they are a little or very prejudiced, and the consistency of that rate from 1983 to 2011-2013. I think it is fair to say that what people mean when they say that prejudice may well have changed over time, but nevertheless a substantial proportion of the population say that they're prejudiced. In terms of potential behaviours, you see, would you mind having uh, uh, an Asian boss, boss in the purple line? And would you mind a relative mar marrying an Asian in the blue line? And you can see those rates have fallen. But nevertheless, in the current climate, a large proportion of people would object to those things. And then this shows racism. And so this shows racism and fear of racism uh, for three ethnic groups. And start off by looking at the red line, which is Black Caribbean people's reports of racism and the consistency of their reports of the experience of racism since 1993 to 2008-9. If you look at the Irish group, you can see that the climate has changed for Irish people, and that suggests that racism is not a static phenomenon, but some groups remain racialised and experience degrees of racism that are fairly consistent over time. So the difference between the Caribbean and the Irish group. And then if you look at the purple line, you can see that Pakistani people's experience of racism has increased, and has increased particularly over the last 10 years. We don't need to speculate to understand why. You can also see in the green line that their fear, their concern about racism has increased over time. And this shows health. And the reason why I show you health, well, two reasons. One is to show you actually the extent of inequality in terms of health. So this is your chance of saying your health is not good compared with white English people for a set of categories along the bottom. And if the bar is above one, then you've got a greater chance of saying your health is not good. And you can see the increasing inequality in terms of health uh, along that um, uh, group of categories. With the Bangladeshi people and Pakistani people, Indian people, Caribbean people and Chinese people all having considerably greater risks of saying that their health is not good compared with white English people. The reason why I show you this also is that this illustrates how these inequalities come together and do harm. Impact on people's health, on people's life expectancy, as well as their quality of life, their feelings of security in the world, uh, and so on. Okay, that's the evidence. I want to talk a little bit about policy. Ethnic inequalities have been a persistent feature of our lives over time. It's something that I've tried to show you. 
And I argue that there has been little or no development of policy to address ethnic inequalities, or certainly no substantial development of policy to address ethnic inequalities, even when there's been an opportunity to do so. So even when we've had inquiries around particular uh, dimensions of inequality, ethnicity has disappeared off the agenda in those inquiries. And where policy has been implemented, there's no evaluation of the impact of that policy on ethnic inequalities. But not a policy vacuum, as you can see in my second bullet point. We're surrounded by um, discourses around identity, around culture, around nationhood, around community, around segregation, around migration, all of which do harm to the security of ethnic minority people in our country. I'd also argue that such policies lack any evidence base. So the discussions of segregation, the discussions of community cohesion, lack any evidence base. What the evidence shows, in fact, is that diverse communities are good places to be in terms of um, community cohesion, in terms of well-being, in terms of experience of racism, uh, and so on. It's not a question of ethnicity, not a question of race, not a question of religion that's driving communities apart. It's a question of deprivation, a question of alienation, and a question of poverty. Social and economic inequalities and alienation are the key drivers. And this policy discourse is led by ministers from Jack Straw onwards so when Jack Straw says I will not have a consultation with a a constituent who wears a veil he's saying that this constituent is not a citizen undermining security, identity and so on policy responses to this I've got a couple of slides on policy responses but I'm not going to actually show those I'm going to skip through them uh, and rather talk a little bit about it so so how do we inform policy how do we drive policy in in this agenda well as I've just indicated important here is to actually shift the political discourse and to try and shift the political discourse around identity around nationhood and around community and to identify the positives of migration the positives of diversity to point to the inequalities that ethnic minority people face and to engage both in short-term and long-term activities that undermine racist narratives and that address the particular economic problems that are faced by ethnic minority people that are very particular, localised and so on. This is not a hopeless agenda, um, I would like to say, although I've kind of given a fairly hopeless overview. Uh, not a hopeless agenda Uh, and in part it's not a hopeless agenda because of the significance of the public sector in this so the public sector is a major employer in our country Um, is an over employer, ethnic minority people are over represented in the workforce and so there's an opportunity to shift public sector employment patterns, employment conditions employment practices to promote equality which then drives other employment sectors. Why is there that opportunity? There's that opportunity because of devolution. So since the beginning of the last parliament, um, Osborne was talking about local employment markets, largely to drive down wages to increase inequality. But we can think about it more creatively in terms of improving employment security and improving, reducing inequality. That's what these two slides did. Uh, And and, and now this is uh, my final slide, which is to ask you, I've got the evidence. The evidence has been generated for decades and decades. Why has it had no impact? And this is what we're told. As academics, we're told that we don't make our evidence visible. People don't know about what we show, what we find, 
Partly we don't make our evidence visible because we're too engaged in theory. Um, uh, we don't actually engage in practice and policy. We don't present our evidence clearly. We have complicated papers with caveats attached to them. And we don't have the evidence available when it's needed, when an inquiry is happening, uh, when a select committee is meeting. And of course the academic world has shifted now. I mean, engage in impact um, agendas. We try very hard to pr promote our research uh, to address this criticism. The other kind of claim is that we need to weigh the costs and benefits of different policy interventions. Different pieces of evidence lead to different directions for policy. We need to be fairly realistic about what we might try and achieve as a consequence of the partial evidence that we present. We also need to think about how we present our evidence in particular policy climates. Do it in a careful way, in a way that tunes into the main policy debates and make a difference. I'm now going to say that these five, five, six points are not the driver. And even these three points aren't the driver. So the other problem that we have is that evidence isn't the only thing. So when I present the kind of evidence that I present to select committees, this isn't the only judgment that is driving politicians. They're also concerned about public opinion. They're concerned about driving consensus. Of course, the narrative around the evidence can generate consensus. Ideology is more important than evidence. Ideology outweighs evidence. Ideology, of course, is used for political purposes. And most scarily, we're told not to cross the stupid line. So I have been told this. I've heard people say this. How stupid is it for you to think that the kind of evidence you generate should produce change? You're talking the wrong language. We shouldn't get this kind of change. But this is the real reason, I would argue, is that the things that concern us are not the things that concern the people who have the authority, the power, the means to make difference. They have different interests, different interests that are concerned with protecting privilege. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, now we have Debbie. Okay. All right. Um, hello, everyone. Um, I would like to use my slot um, to talk about the way that race and class intersects to produce largely race-based inequalities for individuals who come from minority ethnic groups. Um, and I'd like to do that by talking a little bit about education and social mobility. Uh, largely because these are areas that I know something about, so I'm trying to eliminate any risk that you might ask me a question that I can't answer. Uh, but also because um, education and social mobility are really interesting areas to discuss the intersection of race and class. Education is interesting largely because um, it's become one of those spaces, like a lot of other public policy spaces, where there's been a discourse of um, individuals having certain types of success, um, at the expense of other, other individuals who are not having such a successful time. So if we look at housing, for example, or access to welfare, uh, the political discussion about the increase in immigration implies that there are certain individuals who are more likely to gain access to good housing or, or more, more likely to gain access to welfare benefits um, at the expense of largely indigenous white working class individuals who are no longer entitled to, to something that is their right. And in education, a similar sort of discourse has been taking place where there are individuals who have relative degrees of educational success 
um, Indian and Chinese students, for example, doing particularly well at various stages of their educational careers. Um, and there is um, uh, an implied political media and uh, uh, popular discussion about them having this uh, success at the expense of other individuals who are not having the, those sorts of uh, uh, degrees of success. So I'm going to talk as briefly as I can, I've got about 10 slides, um, about the way that race and class mediates the experiences of, me of, of minority ethnic groups in education. Um, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about social mobility to make the argument that regardless of the class background that you occupy, if you come from a minority ethnic group, it is your race that signifies your experience. So I'm going to do that as quickly as I can. These are the questions that I'd like to look at if I'm able to. I'd like to ask whether or not race and class intersect to reduce race rather than class inequalities um, and to perhaps to think about whether or not this is the sort of question that we should be asking. Should we instead be asking how race and class intersect to reduce race rather than class inequalities? Do these intersections work to create educational gaps and differential experiences? Do structural race inequalities work to cut across class boundaries? Um, and on the social mobility question, regardless of your level of income, professional status... Um, where you went to university, is it the orientation of others towards you on the basis of your ethnicity that marks out your experience? Um, okay, so I have slides, as you've noticed. I'm not an academic, but I really have a bad memory, so I have to write everything down. Um, in 2009, uh, Running Me produced a collection of articles called Who Cares About the White Working Class? Um, and in that collection of articles, there are a variety of different authors talking about um, a lot of the political and um, popular obsession, as it were, with the plight of the working classes, what it was what the working classes were doing. Um, and some of those articles looked at their experiences within the education system. Um, and what became very apparent about the way that the white working class was being talked about in the education sphere was uh, talking about white working classes um, by virtue of their ethnicities, rather than talking about the way that structural class hierarchies might be creating the inequalities that they were experiencing in the education system um, in comparison to their wealthier white counterparts. So it became a question about ethnicity rather than about class. What that uh, conversation about the white working classes and their um, inability to gain certain markers of educational success also did was employ a deficit model. So underachievement was occurring as a result of family, uh, family dysfunction. White working class individuals didn't have books. White, can work, white working class individuals um, weren't interested in, in education, etc. Um, so there's a stat that I'd, I'd just like to, to give you, which is it's a current stat. 23.8% of white British boys who are eligible for FSM. So FSM is free school meals. And free school meals is a proxy that's used um, by educationalists to, to decide whether a person comes from a low-income background. 23.8% um, of those individuals gain the National Educational Standard at 16, which is getting five A to C GCSEs. 30.9% uh, of black Caribbean boys also gained um, that, that average. Now, the reason that this is an interesting statistic is there's a couple of reasons that it's interesting. The first reason that it's interesting is because um, the notion of the competition for access to scarce resources became very apparent in the way that politicians and policymakers were talking about the plight of white working class boys in comparison to black Caribbean boys. And black Caribbean boys uh, were the traditional individuals who were seen as never actually ever making the grain, always being the ones to never uh, be able to get what was defined as the national standard. 
be uh, getting the five G- GCSEs, getting the level four at, um, uh, at the age of 11. And what was in- what's interesting about me putting these two together is that there, was this, there became, ever since around 2000, a real determined uh, political push to say that there were certain groups of children, i.e. white working class boys in particular, who were failing at the expense of others, i.e. black Caribbean boys weren't doing badly, but they weren't doing as badly as white, uh, as white working class boys. And the gap between them and their peers was closing. So they were seen as being the individuals who had been receiving all sorts of benefits, be they fu- um, funding benefits, benefits from their, their families, benefits from society, which um, white working class boys were not receiving. But the other reason that this is so interesting is that uh, the use of FSM as a definition for white working class is problematic. Um, and it's something that David Gilborn has talked about um, in a lot of research that he has done on the experiences of white working class boys. If we take... Um, the statistic of free school meals, uh, which is basically if you have a parent in your a parent or an adult in your family who is receiving um, welfare benefits of some description, if we presume that um, free, p- people who claim free, free school meals make up about 15% of the pupil population, so if we equate FSM uh, with working class background, that means that 85% of pupils in this country are middle class, which I don't actually think is that true. If we also then um, assume that about up to 60% of the British population define themselves as working class, then when they see certain types of headlines which talk about the plight of white working class boys in particular, but white working class children uh, as well, then they're more likely to feel aggrieved at what they see, they're more likely to feel that this is a story about them, their lives, their children. And in a way, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, in a way, this is the way that the division and the, the notion of the competition for uh, as scarce resources is set up politically but also um, in popular discourse. So what the, uh, I suppose, preoccupation with what is happening with certain types of children in, oh my God, in the education system masks is that there is a very mixed picture in the education system for minority ethnic groups, but for ethnic groups as as a whole. And what this graph shows is that if you come from a gypsy traveller or Roma background, you are the group that is least likely to leave school at the age of 16 with your five A to star um, uh, A to C GCSEs, which is the gold standard. Um, you're also, if you come from that group, more likely to experience an exclusion from school. So it's likely that you may not finish out your education in a mainstream school at all. But because of the numbers of those who come from Gypsy Roma traveller backgrounds, they're not as much of a, a policy concern. Politicians will say the numbers are too small. It's difficult to make policy decisions around numbers that are so, so small. But these are individuals who are being failed constantly in the education system. But they're not of political interest in, in much of the same way that a lot of the speakers have, have described earlier. I've got two minutes. I'm going to be really quick. Um, <laughs> So it masks what happens to uh, children who come from Gypsy Roma traveller backgrounds, but it also masks all the, all the other sorts of experiences that uh, individuals who come from particular groups are having in schools. Um, what it also uh, doesn't take into consideration is that there are individuals who are achieving well as well as indiv- individuals who are, achieving, uh, who are achieving poorly. So not all minority ethnic kids are doing badly in the education system. We know this. <coughs> Children who are eligible for free school meals who live in London do better than children who are eligible for free school meals anywhere else in the country. Um, And Chinese students and Indian students are um, consistently doing particularly well in comparison to everyone else. There's also been a huge increase of individuals from minority ethnic groups going into the higher education system. I'm not sure if you all come 
uh, are all students here, but if you are, this is great because it's awesome, because it's a really diverse audience. If you don't come to university here, I'm very sorry if I've offended you, but <laughs> it's still a really diverse group, so it's great. So there's really good things, as it were, happening in the education system. I know I've got one minute now. But 25% of BME, uh, BME students are being educated in 30 universities out of about 162 uh, uh, universities across the UK. So that doesn't imply that education is actually enough for all of those individuals because they're not participating equally in the HE system. Um, if you are a BME individual who is applying to study at a research-intensive institution, you're less likely to receive an offer. Um, and even for those who successfully gain access to elite institutions in the Russell Group, for example, if, you're, if you come from a BME background, you're more likely to be unemployed after graduating from the Russell Group than if you were white. So education is clearly not enough for those individuals. However, the uh, race inequalities, and this is a really doomy, gloomy Presentation, but the race inequalities continue. So, uh, David Gilborn and Nicola Rollock have done a piece of work on the black uh, middle classes, and they have found that black middle class parents, regardless of their professional status or their educational qualifications or where they went to university, still have difficulty when trying to negotiate support for their children at school. And when they go to school to argue on behalf of their children or ask about something that may have occurred, they are perceived as being slightly combative and they are reacted to on the basis of their ethnicities rather than the class backgrounds that they inhabit. So, my final slide. Class and race intersect to produce very um, specific race-based um, outcomes for minority ethnic groups, and this is regardless of where you find yourself on the class hierarchy. So Chinese girls who, uh, uh, whose parents are very poor outperform everyone, regardless. They outperform them. Um, Bangladeshi children from, from families who are statistically found within the poorer, uh, the poorer uh, uh, percentile of individuals are doing increasingly well and have been doing increasingly well over the past couple of years. Um, and they achieve higher than the national average at age of 16. Black children from poor families um, are more school ready at the age of four um, than their white counterparts. But by the time they get to age 11, they are failing. Um, black professionals, as I've mentioned, more likely to have negative experiences of the school system when they go in as parents and as, and as adults. And being Russell Group graduates are more likely to be unemployed than the white counterparts. So, yeah, this is really doomy gloomy. But what it means is that we need to have a more sophisticated way of understanding the way that race and class intersect for particular groups. And that when we talk about class and when we talk about race, often the individuals who come from particular types of ethnic backgrounds, <coughs> religious backgrounds, are reacted to on the basis of the ethnic background and the religious background that they inhabit, rather than them speaking in a very lovely way or having a Merc or a Jaguar or something really lovely that I don't have, or coming from a particular group and having certain signifiers of wealth. Thank you very much. Thank you, um, Debbie. So, um We'd like to really open up for, for comments and questions. I would really urge you, please, could you keep your points brief so that we can engage all of the panel members and speak across some of these issues. So there are a whole range of issues that have come up already around questions about the mobility, um, the use of evidence, competing resources, competing ideological positions. And I think loosely it's a kind of politics of ignorance seems to be um, a, a theme that runs across some of these um, presentation. So um, over to you in the floor. Do we have microphones? We do. Thank you. 
Um, any qu- questions, comments to set us, set us off? Yes, thank you. We have somebody down, down here. Uh, thanks for the um, presentations, they were great. Um, I want to ask all of you a question about policy and how it's been executed, um, specifically in regards to race. Um, I want to talk about the whole diversity agenda. And um, someone mentioned about the Tory government over the last five years, but I think you need to look beyond that and look at um, 1997, the new Abbey government. There was no pedigree to the term diversity prior to 1999. So I see it as a very much of a post mcpearsonist term to try and usher in a post-racialism in the UK. However, I don't think diversity has ever really been the challenge to the fundamental forms of discrimination in this country yet. It was a replacement for questions of social inequality into questions of culture and an enthusiasm for culture. And what I want to ask you guys is, what kind of theoretical frameworks do you think a diversity policy needs to be truly anti-racist and anti-discriminatory. Thanks. Thank you. Well, any any other a uh, couple of other questions at the same time? Any follow-ons from that, or we can? That's quite enough, I think, <laughs> to start us off with about um, yeah, how theory might inform policy. Is that sorry over here? Very good presentation. My name is Arsena Jeffers. And I'd like to welcome you to the LSE. And I'd like to ask, now that you're in this family, are you going to have all these things you put up there from the black community to come up inside? You are now inside the Russell Group. So are you going to do something about it? I think that's a good question for everyone. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, that's partly, I think, what sort of motivated this, uh, what, what can be done, what can be done at this particular moment. So I'd like to invite panel members. I think we just start at the end and work across, unless somebody wants to jump in straight away. Ellie? God, I knew I'd have to go first. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to talk deep an LSE your question because it reminds me of when I spoke at Oxford and I was like oh my god everyone's so clever um, what kind of theoretical frameworks I mean I suppose like unless I've completely misunderstood what you're saying I suppose what I, I would say is that um, uh, that to make um, policy on uh, ethnic minorities like truly workable we need to be talking about intersectionality and the way that um no person is any one thing, so a, a BME person isn't just BME, they're also, they also have a gender, they also have a class, and how all those things work together um, to create a kind of life experience of privilege and oppression, um, sometimes both at the same time, sometimes neither. Um, I think that's, uh, that's one, um, one area. And I also think that the other uh, thing that I would like to see to be improved is that there is supposed to be an equality audit of every policy that the government pushes through. So pretty much every cut that we've seen in the public sector is supposed to be audited to see how it, how it impacts on certain different, um, on, uh, different racial groups, different genders, and that isn't happening at all. Like, it isn't happening um, government departments have like declined to do that and, and I think that the sort of response has been absolutely catastrophic and especially when you look at things like cuts to domestic violence refuges where uh, women who are BME and women who are trans have just suffered 
hugely and disproportionately to the extent where hundreds are being turned away from refuges every day and um, and that isn't being discussed so I think that's another area that I would like to see improved on. I hope that answers the question. Oh and the other thing is what, what can we do um, well uh, I, I recognise the hypocrisy of saying this but I think that one thing I can do is like be quiet because uh, there's enough white people on platforms talking about things and I think that um, I think that one of the problems that has been discussed in the um, in the presentation earlier which I, I totally agree with is that it's just not a policy priority and I think that's because policy is made by like middle class white men so generally their interests tend to be looked after in government um, and I don't think that it, that can be resolved by having just the occasional sort of person who doesn't fit that mould come up through the political system so we can all say oh look there's not a problem now look at them um, I think there needs to be a sort of critical mass of people who you know have it at the forefront of their minds to sort of change the way that the institutions work that policies work um, to ensure that you know that things that are, are taken seriously that certain issues are taken seriously that things are more fair and I think that you know what what someone like me can do in terms of race and that is to just like stop talking which is what I will now do okay um, what, what is to be done and how can we have a diversity policy that is truly anti-racist in one way it seems like they're two completely different questions but I actually think they're part of the same question I don't see it really as a discussion of race there and a discussion of class there. And I see it as a question of priorities. And I think what I'm saying is we, are, we have experienced already the biggest cuts in public spending since the 1930s. Already we have experienced that. We're seeing another 12 billion of cuts that is a war against the poor. And within the poor are disproportionately the black and minority ethnic communities, but also the white working class poor. And for me, the priority is what are we all going to do to protect the most vulnerable people in our society who are being demonised and abused and harmed in ways that we haven't seen actually go far beyond what Thatcher did, the, the crisis. So for me, what is to be done does mean that we have to prioritise protecting the people at the bottom of society and starting there. But when we go into saying about a diversity policy that would be truly anti-racist... For me, these two things are linked because there was... For me, all communities are protected in a culture of civil rights. And if you provide people their civil rights, which also, call, which also includes their social rights and their human rights the right to have a house over their head, head, the right to have fair employment, not zero-hour contracts, the right to be able to express themselves freely in their religion freely, that is also a civil right. 
So laws banning the, the headscarf or restricting the wearing of headcuffs is an assault on civil rights. If we start from preserving civil rights, we will see that cultural diversity, uh, religious diversity, political diversity and political pluralism are all part of that framework of civil rights. So that's, for me, where a diversity policy within a civil rights framework and a human rights framework is genuinely anti-racist. Thank you, Liz. Um, I'll start by talking about multiculturalism uh, and sidestep the theoretical question and instead I agree with your broad point that multiculturalism may be a diversion and may have been for a long time a diversion away from the question of inequality and more towards one of identity and culture. I think, the adi- I think there are two additional risks, one which I, perhaps you alluded to and another one which I don't think you did. Uh, one, one is the way in which it sets up groups in competition with each other. Um, uh, and in an era of scarce resources, which we now have, perhaps not in 1997, but we now have, um, uh, that, that becomes a real, a real problem. But more importantly, I think what it also does is produce um, ethnic, race, religious categories, which then, enge- which then become embedded in a discussion of resilience and community resilience. So the problems then become identified as problems of the group rather than problems of the structures around them. And so I think it's a very dangerous um, discourse, in fact, one of multiculturalism, diversity, and so on, rather than one that focuses on um, uh, questions of inequality uh, and particularly racism and discrimination. Um, Thinking through policy, I, I guess making evidence avail- available, visible to communities, to activists is really very important. And maybe there, academics have not been particularly great. I mean, I, I do try and make the evidence that I produce available, but really largely at a political policy level. And you've heard um, uh, what I think about the responses that I get. But at a policy level, I do, and I'll say again what I said during my, my talk very briefly, I'll say it again, is I do think devolution offers alongside huge risks, offers opportunity for local activism and then uh, the adoption of particular strategies at a local level that could lead to some partial addressing of uh, the drivers of inequality and particularly ethnic race inequality of course I'm interested in. Um, Okay um, I think that one of the ways to try to have a truly anti-racist policy is to have Okay, so the first thing to have is to have politicians that are interested in talking about inequality and racism and race in the first place, which unfortunately, for the next five years, we don't have. Um, And I think the second thing that we probably really need is something that we've had but hasn't always worked effectively for us is to have legislation that has bite, so legislation that is enforceable. Um, And unfortunately, we do have equality legislation which can't be enforced because we have um, uh, a commission which has been cut um, rabidly over the years and will probably continue to be cut under this current administration. Um, And I'm being doomy and gloomy again, but there are are things that we can do. What I think that we need to do is I think we need to build on um, some of what James has said. I think that this is a moment in which we need to embrace activism because if we have politicians that aren't necessarily willing or interested in the evidence or willing or interested in talking meaningfully about inequalities, then we need to do the lobbying ourselves. We need to um, become activists ourselves, as it were, and you all need to, to... 
go onto the Runnymede website and look at what they're doing because obviously this is the sort of stuff that we do all the time. Um, and we need to be prepared to have a conversation um, with individuals about trying to address some of the very pernicious inequalities that we have in society. So, for example, if you have at least half of Black Caribbean um, young men unemployed, you need to have a policy which looks specifically at trying to raise or find jobs, uh, apprentice, apprenticeships for them. Not to think that if you want a specific policy, then you're being segregationist, which is uh, one of the responses that we have had in the past. Um, and not to think that if you have a general or generic um, unemployment policy, that you'll just pick up those um, young black men in that process. There are some times when you need to have things which are actually specifically about individuals who are suffering um, in society and to, have the, uh, and to be brave about, about doing that. Um, and what are we going to do about it? We're going to do all that we possibly can. We will lobby as much as we can um, and we will raise awareness as much as we can. I think that this is probably the political moment at which individuals try to, to have their voices heard in whichever political activist way that they possibly can because at the moment we don't have a political landscape which will be willing to do this for us so we kind of have to do it for ourselves. Thank you very much. Are there um, some, some more questions or comments or perhaps responses to what the panel have said because I'm sure many of you are already working in these fields and might want to contribute. Thank you. We have uh, somebody here and somebody over at the front and somebody at the back there. There's somebody else. When, when um, this person has spoken, there's another person to have the microphone down here, microphone people. Thank you. Hi. Um, I'm currently working in Washington, D.C. Um, for the United States Congress, and I've noticed that I got my, inter uh, my internship through the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation in the United States. So I'm wondering whether we should have like a foundation in the UK where it promotes like um, ethnic minority students who are coming from universities who are trying to get into internships in high, you know, higher places where they can work. Because at the moment I don't think we have that in the UK. So hence why I had to move to the US to get that opportunity. So what's your take on that? Thank you. Um, we have somebody down here. Do okay. you have a microphone? Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> um, hi, and thank you for all the points that have been raised by the panellists. Um, just listening to what you're saying, um, I was thinking about myself specifically and just the fact that I don't even think it's um, being from one specific class. I think there's phases of classes. So um, I started off working class, um, went to Russell Group University, um, became, you know, middle class. Um, but whilst I was in university, I was constantly reminded um, of the fact that I was from a working class background. Um, I'm working in the public sector and from some of the points that have been raised, that's where I should be because I'm originally from the working class. Um, so I feel like I'm being pushed from phase to phase um, and I don't know whether that's a situation just based on race, gender or any otherism that you know gets thrown out in, in social policy or social, um, social, social, well, yeah, social conversation. Um, but my question is, if I feel that I'm being pushed from one phase or one class to another, how do we prevent that from happening? Because, you know, even when we look at education, you know, we've got pupil premium that's supposed to be raising attainment for 
I won't say specifically black and ethnic minorities, but when we look at London, just because it's so urbanised, that tends to be the sort of background and the sort of demographic that we're working with when it comes to students. But then when we go into the working world as well, you've got many people from black and ethnic minorities that are having to go into enterprise as a form of getting out of you know, the isms that have been placed upon them. So if people are constantly being pushed back and being put back into working class, how do we break that cycle if all, all that's going to happen is we get taken back to square one and we become working class again? Sorry, that's long. Thank you. So we, ha- we have another... Um, thank you. Um, we have another question or comment from the back, and then there's... Um, could we have the microphone down here for the last question? Um, uh, we... Picking up on what um, Ellie said about the white working class of this country kind of being seen as not having a voice and kind of um, being seen to have to be spoken for because they're kind of not smart enough and too stupid to kind of know what they're doing. Um, Similarly in relation to kind of, particularly in relation to black people in this country, um, is the fact that there isn't a kind of a substantial and visible middle class, black middle class in this country, mean that um, kind of similar to what this lady had said, that she had to go to the US to kind of get herself in a position to kind of, in a position, a stronger position economically, is the fact that we don't have a substantial and visible black working class in this black middle class in this country mean that um, the black voice will continue to not be heard and it will kind of just be dismissed and ignored due to the fact that we don't have a middle class to kind of advocate on our behalf. Thank you. And um, here, and we can then take all questions together. Thank you. Hello. Um, I recently read an article in Foreign Affairs magazine about. Uh, how in the U.S. they're trying to explain the racial divide through the idea of racist institutions and how seemingly neutral social and political institutions can result in extreme differences amongst um, different communities and different ethnic groups. And they use the example of the U.S. criminal justice system, uh, tax and insurance policies, and the education system and showed how these institutions aren't racially neutral. And I wondered if in the U.K., if this interpretation kind of applies because um, through the presentations it seemed like the criminal justice system there was a, a effect that you could see whereas education it seemed more mixed on whether there's institutions are racist so I just wanted to hear the perspectives on that Thank you very much so um, panel who wants to go first and perhaps as we've got four points um, if there's one particular one that you want to emphasise but as long as we, we cover all the four points that would be Great. Anybody, James, you're looking at me. I'm going to have to go first if no one else wants to. <laughs> um, I just want to pick up on, uh, on one, one dimension that I think connects most of the things that people uh, uh, have uh, talked about. And, and that, dimension, that, that dimension is that um, these apparently neutral locations, which are not just about um, uh, institutions, but also about positions in society. So if you think about institutions like Russell Group Universities, and how they are raced in particular ways. Classed as well, of course, raced and classed in particular ways that make the position of ethnic minority and working class people in those locations, as, as one of the questions raised, um, difficult. 
If you think about that in terms of particular types of occupations and how occupations are raced in particular ways, if you think about institutions like the police and the criminal justice system or the mental health uh, system. So, so, my, so, so I, I just want to turn it back just a little bit and just ask, um, uh, and you borrowing from the US experience, how important is positive discrimination in terms of attempting to redress the harms done by apparently race-neutral um, uh, positions and institutions? Uh, and, and I suppose I would raise the question of whether, whether positive discrimination actually is an important way of redressing some of those inequalities that we see. Thank you. How do we break the cycle? We need a revolution. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, I'm not... My second name's not Lenin or Stalin or any of these people. Um, but seriously, we need a revolution, and by that I mean a cultural revolution. A revolution in the way that we look at things and the way that we see things. We've had the great thing that Thatcher did to destroy the beauty the beautiful things that came out of working-class culture, and I don't mean white working-class culture, I mean the black working-class culture in this country, which from the 1960s onwards had a massive struggle in the factories, uh, in the streets. Uh, Stephen Lawrence campaign, recognition, first country in Europe because of the black struggle to recognise that there was institutional racism in the police. Where, where are we going? It's like Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There are only individuals. We've got to stop thinking as individuals and to go back to all those ideas of solidarity, public service, uh, everyone for each other that came out of the working-class struggle. So that's really, for me, the first thing that I would say. I can't answer the question about foundations around... Uh, interns, because I don't know enough about that. I, I imagine that this is something that the Lawrence Foundation, which was set up in memory of Stephen Lawrence, who was a very promising young uh, student who wanted to be an architect, and I know they've been helping uh, very many people, um, students. But it goes back to this thing, the, both questions about you know the, the social mobility, that you're middle class, and then you can return to the working class, etc. Mm. But we're living in a two-thirds, one-third society. And actually, the problem is the middle class. You know, the problem is how do we win the middle class back to any progressive politics? We can see in the working class or in the poor communities there's a massive rise in social protest. We've got rebellions on our hands. Social Scotland is a rebellion against against austerity but the question is how do we make people who are in that two-thirds actually understand that they could become one of the one-third again and actually the whole thing is around young people because if you're a parent I'm a parent many of you are in here you could be a parent who's middle class but you're very worried about what's happening to your son or daughter because they're not going to be able to afford a home like you could afford a home my daughter could be living with me for the rest of my life. I mean, I just wanted her out. Not because I didn't love her, but because it was a natural progression. She needed to go out there, you know. She needs to be independent. 
Also, you know, I don't want her coming back. <laughs> I cleared out her cupboard. I've got somewhere to hang my clothes for the first time. But all I'm saying is that former middle class people, they're desperately worried about what will happen to their children because they're not getting those privileged interns. That class are looking after themselves and they're looking after their children. And we've got to make sure the middle-class parents, particularly those ones who come from the working class, don't forget their roots and return their education to their roots. Thank you. I'm sorry, Kavita, I didn't mean it. Um, I, will, I will answer the, the second and third question, but before I do, I just need to clarify, because I, I couldn't hear you very well because your, the mic was a bit close to your mouth. I was, were you asking um, about, do you think, sorry, Sarah's, um, asking you just to clarify on your question, were you asking that? Um, do, do we think that um, the black working class is disenfranchised because it doesn't have a middle class to adv- black middle class to advocate on its behalf? Yeah. That's what, okay. Cool. I did hear you right. Okay. Um, I, I'm going to. So I'm going to answer your question and your question. And I'm going to cheat and I'm going to give the same answer for both. Um, I loved your question because I lie awake thinking about what you what you asked like every night um, and. Not every night, I'm not that sad. <laughs> I do have a personal life. And, um, and I, basically, uh, did, has everybody here read, or anybody here read, rather, um, The Rise and Fall of the Default Male by Grace and Perry? And ask, yeah, for God's sake, go read it. It's so good. It's like porn for me. Um, and um, it's basically about how uh, there, like, there is this kind of, uh, he calls it default man, which is the um, white male uh, middle class heterosexual, sort of able-bodied figure who runs everything. And um, as someone who works in the media and in politics, I spend a lot of time around this default man, and he definitely exists. And and, um, the most remarkable thing about default man is uh, his mediocrity. I mean, the default man is, like, staggeringly mediocre and and has kind of been uh, parachuted up the sort of social ladder. Um because uh, he looks like power, because he talks like authority, he looks like authority. You know, like when you imagine, if you imagine power in the society, you imagine like a a white posh guy in a suit, right? Um, And so like someone like you, as brilliant as you may be, will always hit hit against that because you don't look like that. And you know, for, for a number of reasons. And so it will be harder for you. And I think... And I think one thing that we don't talk about a lot is um, is the way that it's not just a kind of a, a question of like categories and a question of sort of economics. It's also a question of like of culture. That these people have a particular way of speaking. They have a particular way of sort of engaging with one another. And also, they're all part of the same clubs. Like they all went to the same universities. You know, they all hang out in the same places. It, it's really quite impenetrable. Like you know, I know someone who used to work in Westminster, and she got told off for wearing office clothes because the colours were too bright. I mean, these are you know, this is the sort of level of conformity that you have to engage in in order to fit into this world. Like I remember a friend of mine who is part of this world. Um, got a job in The Economist and I remember sort of go, he invited me to a dinner party at his house I mean you can tell the way the story's going and um, <laughs> and I remember uh, walking in and being like and him saying oh I got this job at The Economist and I went am I allowed to swear? I went you're all adults we're all adults here I went uh, oh, well done fucking A give me five and then everybody just sort of looked at me and I was like I'm sorry that was inappropriate and then sort of sat down and was like you know because like it's you know it's a very kind of closed sort of culture that only a tiny proportion of the population are allowed in and you have to 
obey all of these cultural rules. You know, one thing that they, uh, Grace and Perry says in this in this um, essay is that we associate identity with marginalised people, so with women, with BME people, blah, 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 blah. But actually, like, these people have an identity, they have a culture, you know, but because their, their culture is sort of objectivity, it's power, it's kind of the default um, setting for society, it's, it's invisibilised, and, and so, you know, that's kind of the problem that anyone who doesn't fit into that comes up against. And, like, I, I took, came out of activism and I sort of came out of trade unionism, which is how I sort of ended up where I am. So I will always kind of revert to, like, activism as my answer for everything. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think the answer of, like, how do we deal with that is, like, to quote Roseanne Barr, no one gives you power, you just take it. Like, it's not like anyone's... It's not like the fault of women um, and people who are BME and BME women and... LGBTQ people are la 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 who it's not their fault it's not our fault that we have been discriminated against systematically over centuries but it is true to say that the way that we we redress that situation is like by saying like no we're not going to take this anymore and by asserting ourselves because all oppression is a is dehumanization right it's a process of dehumanization so like that's how we have stereotypes is it's a way of dehumanizing people and making them less than human and fitting lots of wonderful and diverse interesting human beings into stupid simplistic categories so we can write them off as not human and dehumanize it. that's what the the default man has is he has he's allowed to be an individual and so the way that we redress that i think as you know marginalized people in whatever way that we are marginalized is by asserting ourselves or by acting collectively and asserting our humanity and i think that's like how we take this on thank you very much thank you debbie okay i'll be really quick uh i think probably one of the ways to try and it's really difficult um all these questions are are really really good questions um i'll come back to uh that piece of research that i mentioned earlier that's uh it's just been finished by nicola rollick and david gilborn which looked at the black middle classes um, and in it, it, what she and uh, the other the authors were thinking about was the fact that some people think that you should, you should just change the parameters of the debate. So not have to try to force yourself to fit into something which doesn't want you, but to, 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 to change the parameters of, of what it is or where it is that you're aspiring to go. Because if you're not wanted there, then you do your own thing. So in a way, when you're talking about individuals leaving the workforce to set up their own businesses or going to social enterprise. That's one way of trying to answer that difficulty. But also, um, for many um, black middle-class parents that uh, uh, that Nicola and David were interviewing, many of them felt that um, they didn't want the, uh, the definition of being middle-class because to be middle-class was to be white, and that's not what they were. Um, but then at the same time, they weren't working-class because they obviously had all these other things that which you would nominally um, attribute to being middle-class. So what that means is that they call themselves something else or they're not being whatever it is that the white middle classes are. They're something else. They, they have um, aspirations and they have success, but they don't want to be what others are, that you know, they don't feel that they're part of it. So it's, in a way, it's like that's, perhaps that's what we need to do. We need to change the parameters of the debate and not try to, to shoehorn ourselves into, into, into that. Um, and on the institutionalised uh, question... Um, it's something that uh, Post McPherson, after Stephen Lawrence was killed, the, the inquiry into his death, institutional racism was talked about almost 
mercilessly for a while um, in looking at what was occurring in, in the police force and, and was endemic in other um, public institutions. But it's not talked about as much anymore. It's become that dirty word, I suppose, like equality. Uh, Theresa May doesn't want to talk about equality. She doesn't think that's the proper word. You need to talk about fairness, because fairness is a word that people like and they accept. If you talk about equality, that means that somebody is getting equality at the expense of someone else. So it was it was something we discussed, but it's just, it's just not the done thing to discuss it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that it's not on the political agenda anymore. Thank you, that was succinct. Um, we, we have just a couple of minutes, if there was anybody with a... Oh, a couple of people. Oh, several people. Um, I don't think we'll actually get kicked out, so if we could keep the um, comments or questions very short and then put them as the last round to, to the panel, that would be great, thank you. If you could really be succinct. Um, somebody here? Somebody up there right next to you? Yeah, do you want to go first? Yes, my question is based on three issues you mentioned earlier in, the, in reference to change, power, and the challenge in terms of institutional structures. One of the speakers mentioned policies. In my experience, there's a, an incredible contempt at institutional level at what some academics refer to as neoliberal agendas. And... From where we stand, none of these agendas have ever even begun to address at solving any of the issues mentioned in terms of equalities or class. Is there a way forward? Thank you. Thank you. Um, gentlemen here. Thank you. I think we've touched on it a bit, or each panel member has, but how can we challenge ingrained and unconscious bias? Good question. Thank you. Um, so there's, there was uh, somebody here, and then there's one last person there, and then I think we'll have to stick with that. Oh, two people there. <laughs> He's so well brought up. <laughs> um, I have an interest in admissions at Russell Group Universities, um, and at the moment, we get information on a young person or an applicant's gender, their age, their Polar 3 postcode, so how likely they are to go to university. We get information about their school success, all of which we can flag to make allowances in the admissions process. At the moment, we do not get information about ethnic origin, even though it's collected on the UCAS form. Has the time come to share that information with universities as part of the decision-making process. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. So then there was one other person here. Thank you. I, it's more of a comment than a question. But what I noticed was that although there are programs available, in general there is precious little to help BME parents prepare their children for class and race discrimination, and they come up through the system mostly unprepared. And that, is, that to me is a serious gap in mounting any challenge to inequality. Thank you very much. Okay, so if I could just ask the panel to um, address those last points. Is that 
we've forgotten from, from what McPherson said, that, that, that we have to keep repeating, you know, the definition of institutional racism, because as far as I remember it, and I really think you should be answering this, not me, was that McPherson defined institutionalised racism as a collective failure of an organisation to provide a professional service to people from black and minority ethnic communities. But, critically, that could be direct or indirect, conscious or unconscious, because let's face it, it's, it's, you know... The organisations that sort of consciously, consciously and with malice of forethought, I'm thinking of things like the EDL, the British National Party, even the EDLs come along, <laughs> you know, with, with things. But, you know, it's so much of, you know, structures in society, good people do bad things. You know, good people with best intentions shore up structures that are indirectly racist. So I think a lot of, of that answer is, is there in the McPherson, but we've collectively written that out of over the last 10, 15 years. Thank you very much. James? Yeah, I, I can say a couple of things in, in, in response to the questions and, um, and begin with, uh, you know, the, question, the questions are around racism and prejudice. Uh, and uh, thinking about racism and prejudice and where, where, how, these, how these operate, where they operate. Unconscious bias, is unconscious bias really the main problem that we face? We can, we can measure unconscious bias, there are ways of measuring unconscious bias, we can reveal to people their unconscious bias, and we can train people to combat their unconscious bias, but we have blatant racism, discrimination, prejudice occurring as well. And so I would ask the question whether the focus on unconscious bias moves us away on, onto, onto a, an important agenda, but perhaps um, not the main agenda. Um, preparing our children for experiences of racism. Uh, some of the research uh, that we've done shows that parents' exposure to racism impacts on their children's development, at a cognitive, emotional uh, level, physical level as well. Uh, if people live in areas where they think racism happens, then their children have harms done to them in terms of cognitive side. So my point is, I guess this is all good to prepare ourselves for these exposures, but it's not the parents' responsibility to deal with this. It's um, the school's responsibility and so on. Uh, and that's where we need to place um, uh, our attention. Um, uh, but within this, of course, the contempt at political levels for, for the concerns that we have, I think, is uh, absolutely true, particularly if we take a central government level, and I return back to my point earlier, I think localism does offer us some opportunities to reverse that um, uh, uh, contempt. Russell Group Universities. Um, some time back, medical schools had written into their programmes of admission the identification of foreign names and negative points being given to people with foreign names. The statistician who worked in a medical school who identified this and published it had his career blocked for about 20 years by that medical school. Uh, that's the medical school where I trained at. Uh, so I know the inside story as well as the outside story. Nevertheless, this opens up the opportunity, and I'll raise it again, the opportunity for positive discrimination. Um, I probably didn't ask the question appropriately. Anybody here pro-positive discrimination? Positive action, whatever. 
A handful. I'm, I'm surprised by the numbers. There you go. That's good. Um, but, but I think in a, in, a, in a position where where we're in a position where neutral behaviour leads to growth of inequality or maintenance of inequality, mm-hmm. what solutions do we have? Thank you, Ellie. Um, I'll be super quick because we I talked loads last time and we're over time. Um, so I just wanted to address. I'm only going to address the question about uh, an unconscious bias. Um, and I'm, to do that, I'm going to uh, quote Chris Rock, who, when he was talking about um, Obama becoming president, that it was hailed as a, a, a sort of a symbol of black progress. And he says, like, that's not black progress, that's white progress, that white people are finally no longer so shitty that they can't accept the black president. Like, it's white progress. So this is, sounds like a very simplistic answer, but I actually think it is quite a simple matter. Like, to address... Uh, unconscious bias and overt racism and I think they are kind of a spectrum of the same thing um, white people like have to change white society has to change white people need to like be honest with themselves and be humble and it's white society uh, that needs to change and I think we need to reframe the way that we talk about race to acknowledge that it's not black people that need to change I'm using the word black politically um, but it's white people who, who need to change so I think that's where it needs to go Thank you very much. So I want to thank all of our panel members for their contributions tonight, and hopefully we will be taking away um, positive uh, action uh, (laughs) for the future. Um, And I'm going to hand over to Omar Khan, um, who's Chair of Economy Justice, to um, close with a few, few closing comments here. Thank you. I won't take you uh, take much of your time. I'm Omar. I'm the director of the Running Meat Trust. I just wanted to say thank you for to all of you for coming. Thank you uh, to the LSE, to Mike for for hosting Running Meat here. You can find a lot of information about racial inequalities on our website and on Code's website. Uh, it's www.runningmeattrust.org. Um, but I think the message from the panel that um, we need greater activism, obviously evidence by itself doesn't change minds, doesn't put pressure on politicians. So it would be great to see all of you uh, doing things locally, doing things, uh, writing to your MPs, making sure that they are uh, engaged in those equality impact assessments. It sounds quite technical, but making sure that the laws that we pass aren't institutionally racist is going to be a key uh, demand of the next five years. I also want to thank, thank the panel, Ellie, Liz, James, Debbie, and Tasuki for, for chairing. I think they've shown that you can have a, a little bit less trivial of a discussion about race and class. And um, thanks to all of you, and good night.